Morning, brothers and sisters. This morning we'll continue in our study of the book of James. Anne reminded me that this is our 11th Sunday tackling the book of James. We'll be concluding the third chapter of the book of James. This is a bit of a a cumulative midterm exam for us. There are five chapters in the book of James. We're at the bottom of the third. And James is going to ask us to recap everything that we've learned so far. In this exam, we'll be asked to to reevaluate all of the, the tests that we've applied to the authenticity of our faith thus far. Thankfully, and praise to God, as we come near to his scripture and we find ourselves wanting in the exam, we find scripture full of the answer. So our answer to last week's test of do we control our tongues, we found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. It's that grace that we'll rely upon as we come near to the word of God for yet another evaluation of the authenticity of the faith that we possess in Jesus Christ and our effectiveness in applying the gospel that he has communicated to us. As we begin, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. We'll read verses 13 through 18 as we prepare to submit ourselves to perhaps the most difficult of the exams the scripture would bring us so far in the book of James. The word of God, James chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to prepare our hearts, to draw near to God's word, and to test ourselves. Father God, we come together as a body of believers again this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to worship you, Lord God. We thank you that you have created our mouths to produce an overflow of our heart to worship you. We thank you for the songs of praise that have lifted us up as we have lifted up your name. We pray, Lord God, as that we, we draw near to your word, that it will first bring us low and then bring us up, that we may be edified, that we may be sanctified, and that you may be glorified. In Jesus' precious name, amen. The passage that we'll be looking at today deals with that of, of wisdom. Do we possess wisdom? Moreover, we'll be asked to to look at the motivation of our hearts. So far, the the tests that we've looked at in the book of James have been tests that would have some sort of outward manifestation. Are we someone who has steadfastness in the face of trials? Do we control our anger? 
Do we hear the word and also do it? Do our, our mouths indicate the overflow of our hearts? All of these things are external, but today's test requires us to look at internal motivation. Internal motivation is something that we can, we can hide from others. But as the word of God will show us this morning, we can't hide it from God. And it has practical implications in the body of believers. So we'll go and, and prepare ourselves to, to look at this test in our lives by first understanding what wisdom is. So let's look together at verse 13. James begins with a, a rhetorical question, a common tool that he'd used throughout his epistle. And he says, who is wise and understanding among you? We don't have to answer out loud. Please don't. James is, is asking, who's wise and understanding? And it's important for us to understand the context in which James is replying. First of all, he's replying in a context of, of Jewish believers in the midst of a society that's by and large dominated by the Greek philosophy of the age. Now, the Greek philosophers, those who were lovers of wisdom, would get together to hear themselves talk, and they would talk about some ethereal wisdom that wasn't wisdom lived out. But for the Jewish listener, wisdom is applied. Wisdom is lived out. Furthermore, as James asks this question, wisdom and understanding are paired together. The pairing of those words would have had some familiarity for the Jewish audience. I'd like to take you to a couple of Old Testament examples together to help us understand how these things are paired together and the way in which God grants wisdom and understanding. Before we do that, I will tell you that the wisdom and understanding that we're about to see is not the wisdom and understanding necessarily that James is going to be talking about. Deuteronomy chapter 1, a passage we've referenced already in our study of James. We see Moses overwhelmed at the daunting task of leading the people of Israel. And he goes to God and says, I can't lead these people alone. And, and look what he says, God's response in verse 13 of Deuteronomy chapter 1. He says, Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifty, commanders of tens, officers throughout your tribes. So this first definition that we have of wise and understanding and experienced is in the terms of, of leadership. The next example that I would take you to in the Old Testament is found in the book of 1 Kings, chapter 4. We'll begin at, at verse 29, looking at just a, a recap of God's gracious granting of wisdom and understanding to King Solomon. Look how it's described, starting at verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and of the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Israelite, and Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts, of birds, of reptiles, and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from the kings of the earth 
who heard his wisdom. This is wisdom and understanding granted by God. But if you'll notice, it's a knowledge of the created world. Solomon knew about all these kinds of trees. And Solomon knew of all of these kinds of animals. And I point out, it says that Solomon spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. If you recall from last week, we saw that that man could tame all of those, but he couldn't tame the tongue. But the way scripture references these four things together, beasts and birds and reptiles and fish, is to say all of the animal kingdom. This is the kind of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding that Solomon possessed. For those that would say science is real and that science is somehow diametrically opposed to things of of God, would find this to, to speak to that contradiction. God has given, in a general sense, the ability for us to to use science to discern the natural world, to study the natural world, and to have dominion over it. But that's not the kind of wisdom and understanding that James is talking about. One more Old Testament example, if you would, Daniel chapter 1. In Daniel chapter 1, we know that During the Babylonian captivity, the people of Israel were were taken off. They were enslaved. Yet some of those slaves were exalted to a particular position because of their wisdom and their understanding. I'll I'll start at verse 4. It's it's talking about Daniel and his friends. It's talking about youth without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And if you skip ahead to verse 20 of the same chapter, specifically the groups of people, Daniel and those who would be later named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it says that in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all of the magicians and the enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. See, this is remarkable. We see these examples in the Old Testament of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom that was given to the leaders of nations, to the advisors of kings, and a wisdom understanding the natural world. But when we go back to James, we need to understand that James is talking about a wisdom not to understand the general revelation, but a wisdom to understand the special revelation. The special revelation requires not just knowledge, but faith. Faith granted supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we know that that James was a student and a lover of scriptures from the Old Testament, but we also know that James was a, a follower and a student of Jesus Christ. So when he uses this term, who among you is wise and understanding? He's again taking us to the words of Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin at verse 21. An incredible, incredible passage. This is, this is wise and understanding as James would define it. This is wise and understanding as Christ would describe it. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And I, And said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Let me stop there for just a minute. As we sang of the Trinity, 
the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son. Marvel at this passage. It says Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit as he converses with his Father. And he says to the Father, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. Those, those types of wisdom and understanding that we just described from the Old Testament, not it. But look what it is. It says that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see, this is the, the gospel made clear through the power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, a work of faith offering salvation to those whom God would reveal himself. And look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Verse 23. Then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. You see, the wisdom of, of Daniel, the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of the leaders of Israel inquired of all these things. And now, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of time, the gospel is revealed, shaming the wisdom of the wise, the understanding of the understanding, and making clear to children and those who would be like children saved through the miraculous faith given by God himself. So it's that wisdom that now we're looking to see. To help you follow along a little bit, I'm going to give you a few points throughout the, the sermon today. The first one I'm going to tell you is that wisdom equals gospel applied. You heard Brother Ryan reinforce that. We have come to see throughout the book of James that we're looking for a test of authentic faith. Well, faith is the gospel accepted and wisdom is the gospel applied? So James is going to take us to this question and he's going to ask us, who's wise and understanding? Who has accepted the gospel and applied it to his or her life? Well, here's how we're going to know if the gospel has been rightly applied to our lives. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The word conduct is a word that appears very infrequently in the New Testament. And we won't spend a lot of time on this, but the, the synonym I would give you for conduct is that of lifestyle, right? Who has accepted the gospel? Who is wise and understanding among you? By his lifestyle, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, He's referring to, to Timothy, the young pastor. He says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, and my patience. We also have Peter explaining to God's people, now that they have placed their faith and accepted the gospel, they're now called to apply the gospel and live it out. And he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, be holy in your lifestyle, live it out. Make this be characteristic of the wisdom and understanding that comes through the gospel. But perhaps one portion of the, the, this passage that we would have a little trouble understanding goes back to let him show his works in the meekness 
of wisdom. Now the word meekness comes up a couple of times in the book of James. And the first time that we see that is in verse 21 of chapter chapter one. James is describing what the application of the gospel ought to put out of our lives. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. The implanted word, the gospel, the application of that gospel, and it requires being received with meekness. Meekness is gentleness. Meekness is humility. And before we go further into the the next couple of verses, which have a, a bit of a negative tone to them, I want us to understand the importance of accepting the gospel and applying it with meekness and humility. We know that Peter talks about that conduct and and a conduct that should be showing that we give an answer with gentleness and respect. We also know that James oftentimes gives us a, a recapitulation of the Beatitudes. And Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That meekness is a humility with which we must receive the gospel and we must reply, apply the gospel to our lives. Last month, some of you know that we had a family uh, attempt to go see the Grand Canyon. Based on uh, the weather, we weren't able to actually get there. I would love to see the Grand Canyon and and show it to uh, my kids. But when I think of the Grand Canyon, the Grand Canyon is a miraculous thing that attracts those who who are naturalists, those who are atheists, those who are Christ followers, and everyone who stands at its edge has no choice but to marvel to marvel at its depth, to marvel at its, at its width, to marvel at the peril of this canyon. I jokingly tell my kids, eh, it's just a big hole in the ground. <laughs> but, but you see, that's an incredible metaphor to help us understand God's mercy. Until we gaze upon it, until we experience it, we miss its vastness. And more importantly, the thing that people come away from when they look at the Grand Canyon is just how small they are right? Just how small you are in comparison to this thing. And that's what the gospel ought to produce in us. See, we can't approach these next couple of verses and understand the rightful humility in our lives until we understand the magnitude of God's mercy and the grandeur of the gospel. We got to put ourselves right-sized and understand that. So this verse says, if you've understood that with humility, if you understand how great it is what Christ has done for you, how impossible it is to to separate you from the love of Christ, that should produce humility in you. And that humility ought to play itself out as a godly lifestyle. Wisdom applied. As we move towards verse 14, I want to give you the second point before we look at this. and, And that is, we can in our lives, as we know sound doctrine, appear to be applying the gospel, but we do it with selfish motives. And that's why I tell you, this is the hardest test so far. This is motivation. This is what makes us do the things we do. How often do we do what appears externally to be the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reasons. We do it for, for selfishness. We do it while forgetting the grandeur of the gospel as we make much of ourselves. Verse 14 of James chapter three says, but if you have bitter jealousy 
and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not be boast, do not boast and be false to the truth. See, James is, is giving us a warning here and he's using some words and he's talking about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition being the motivation for why we live out our lives in a way that appears to apply the gospel. Now keep in mind, from the beginning of the book of James, we've understood that this is written to the 12 tribes in dispersion. This is written to those who have accepted the gospel, but yet we're still working out how to apply it. We're like that, that proverbial casserole that you take out of the oven before it's cooked, right? We're under sanctified. That's what we need to come away with. This is not talking about a counterfeit faith. It's talking about a gospel application as we continue to work out the sinfulness in our lives. It says, you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Do not boast and be false to the truth. First, we have to look at what is this bitter jealousy thing all about? There's a couple of different synonyms. One would be a, a harsh zeal and the other would be envy. What place does envy have in the life of a believer? None. I'll share a quote on screen from Daniel Doriani. He's the author of the reformed commentary on this book of James. And he says something really important. He defines this bitter jealousy, this envy and warns of its danger in the life of the body of believers. He says, envy is the enemy of Christian living. It is the opposite of grace for it wants to grasp rather than give. Envy is the opposite of caring for the needy. Envy sees only its own needs and desires. Envy thinks other people should care for themselves. Left to ourselves, we all live for ourselves and envy what others have. Yet, God does not leave us to ourselves. And praise God for that. But as we, as we come near to this text, what we understand is that James is asking us to check our motivations. Why is it that we're doing what we're doing? He says, if you're doing what appears to be an application of the gospel out of jealousy or out of envy, take great care. If you would turn with me to Philippians chapter one. And we know that, that Paul writes this e epistle to deal with selfishness in the life of the church. But what we see is an example here in the first chapter of Philippians, starting at verse 15 of those who have probably placed their saving faith in Christ and have now recognize that there are some benefits, right? Of, of having pretended to, or, or, or they've taken on the gospel, but they've now seen some benefits that might help them out along the way. They've taken their focus off of their response to the gospel being glorifying Christ and serving the body. And they found that, it, Hey, this could be beneficial for me, right? Look at uh, verse 15 of Philippians chapter one. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So in Paul's day, we've got false preachers that are preaching out of envy and rivalry. We've learned that the gospel messengers would 
figure out that they could be itinerant preachers and teachers and go from one place to another and actually earn a living preaching the gospel. This still happens today. Men who want to fill churches to, to sell books, to bring in income. In our own ministries, we also recognize that there's so much blessing that comes from living out the gospel that we might inappropriately put our eyes on that blessing and look for what we might receive out of applying the gospel to our lives. That's false wisdom. That's false wisdom. That has to do as well with ambition. The word ambition is a common word in the world around us. It's describing people who are wanting to be successful or wanting to be influential or wanting to be beheld by the eyes of the world. What place does that have in the church? Again, in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, that's the, that's the opposite of selfish ambition. That's ambition motivated by the gospel. When we look at wise and understanding, it's applying the gospel. Serving with our, with our various giftings, motivated by our love for Christ and our love for others. Not our love of self. Going back to James chapter 3, the second part of verse 14 is, is quite interesting. He says, do not boast and be false to the truth. Some other translations might have that worded slightly differently, but here's the gist of it. It's not talking about a, a boasting per se of being a braggart. It's talking about a confidence. Don't put a confidence in your right application of the gospel unless you're rightly applying it for the right reasons. You see that distinction? We can do what appears to be the right thing, but from, for the wrong reasons. And if that's the case, be careful where we have our confidence, not in what we do, but in what he does. And he says, don't be false to the truth. This is an interesting way of, of expressing that he is wanting us to understand that what we've actually lived out in our lives, how our lifestyle plays itself out, is a manifestation of having truly accepted the gospel. If we go back to James chapter one, verse 18, we find this word truth and we find it in a way that really ties into what we're seeing today in this portion of chapter three. Again, chapter three serves as a recap of what we've learned so far. But verse 18 of chapter one says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. See, the word of truth there is a description of the gospel. That is, it was God's will to reveal to us the gospel. And in doing so, we would be the first fruits, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we can't, we can't produce this false fruit. We can't be false to the truth. And that's a danger that we have, we have to be aware of. 
Some of you may have been to uh, furniture stores. We occasionally will visit a, a furniture store, and throughout the furniture store, you'll see a lot of things that are props, and one of the things that I always found interesting is the, uh, the food arrays that are set out on the tables. You'll see the, the wooden bananas and the plastic grapes and the, the fake fruit, right? And that's what I want us to have in mind as we look at this. What we're describing here now is what appears to be a wise application of the gospel, but done for the wrong reasons, and the result is fake plastic fruit. And James tells us in verse 15 what this fake fruit is all about. What is its origin? He says, this wisdom, this application of the gospel is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. Wow. Wow. That's the, that's the antithesis of what we've received as the word of truth. You see, this is from our residual nature. Again, this passage is not written to the unregenerate. It's written to the undersanctified, which I think we've all figured out by now applies to us. We have to be careful that as we apply and we participate in the application of the gospel, that we carefully check our motives. Do we, do we want to be in, in ministry so that the others see us? Some of us might be on the other extreme. Some of us might want to do ministry in a way that we don't want anybody to see us because we feel like we've, then, we've, been, uh, we've been suffering for Jesus, like Mary and Martha, or somebody who wants to have that, that sense of humility and being behind the scenes. Why do we participate in ministry? Why do we want to do acts of mercy? Is it so that we would receive some sort of favor from others? There are many in ministry today that would basically have the message, give so that you receive. We need to check our motivations because some of our motivations, because we're still under sanctified, will come from our, our old nature. The axiom that we've all heard many times is that the enemy of the, of the believer is the world, the flesh, and the devil. Right? And here we have it again. This is so clear. This is not wisdom that comes from above. This is not gospel application, but it's earthly. It's from the world. It's unspiritual. It comes from our flesh and it's demonic. It comes from our spiritual adversary. So be careful because that's fake fruit. Verse 16, James further drives this point home. And he's describing what happens in the church when we've got people who are motivated by self. They've lost sight of the grandeur of the gospel and they've made themselves in their own eyes bigger than they ought to be. Verse 16 says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You see, if we're all, we're all, faking our application of the gospel sooner or later that comes to light and it comes to light because it will play itself out in the life of the church. And that's why we must take great care. That's why James is writing this letter to these, these congregations, to these groups of believers. Be careful. If you think you've understood faith and you, you don't do it, you only hear it. If you speak things that aren't speaking grace to one another, if you're doing things out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, be careful because this fruit will ruin the church. 
For this very reason, Paul wrote at least two, probably three letters to the Corinthian church. And I'd invite you to turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We'll look at two passages in, in this precious letter. First of all, in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul contrasts himself with others that may have been motivated falsely. He says, for we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, don't forget that word, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. See, Paul is, is talking about a sincerity, and he's talking about presenting the gospel for pure motives, for the glory of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, and for the edification of the church. Staying in that same book, turn with me to chapter 12. As he's winding down this, this letter to the Corinthian church, he's writing of what he expects to find when he goes to visit them. And he's, he's writing of what they might expect Paul's response to be. And there's some grave concerns because of selfish motivations that existed in that church. Starting at verse 19 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish and that you may not find me as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality that they have practiced. Look at the state of the, the Corinthian church. And Paul is, is talking about wanting to see these things put aside. Some of the things that we looked at in the portion of James last week with sins of the, of the mouth. And some that we'll, we'll see next week and we look at quarreling and jealousy. But all of it, the net result is disorder. A church that's a mess. It's no secret that the, the church has been described as things like the beautiful letdown. The church is described as a, as a place of, that's marred by sin. But it ought not be that way. Because wisdom from above is the gospel rightly applied. Not for our own gain as individual members, but for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. The third point that I'd like to take us to is that the gospel applied can also be defined in such a way that we can understand what it is that we're aiming to show in our godly conduct. Back to James chapter 3, verse 17. And I'm, I'm excited about this verse. This verse is, to me, a summary of everything that we've read so far. It's a beautiful summary of everything that we've looked at in, in James. And it's not told from the, the negative perspective, but rather it's told from a positive prescriptive perspective that says, rightly understood, rightly applied gospel ought to look like this. Let's look at it together. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What an amazing description as we, as we look at these fruits that are described. So I want us to, to look at a few things. Anne kindly helped me put together a couple of slides that would allow us to look at these verses in context of what the words might mean in another translation and furthermore, what they meant as they came out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. You see, we know as we've looked at the Beatitudes time and time again, that those are, are prescriptive of what one who would hear and respond to the gospel might look like. It's not that we, we earn God's blessing through those Beatitudes, but rather we live them out organically because we've rightly applied the wisdom of the gospel to our lives. So let's look at this kind of word by word. First of all, the wisdom from above is first pure. Now, what's wisdom from above? What's wisdom from below? Before we look at that, I want to go again to the words of, of Christ. If you would turn to John chapter 18. It's a little bit longer passage, so we only have kind of the highlights on screen. But we have wisdom from above described to us yet again as the gospel applied. This is different than wise and understanding. This is different than the wisdom of the world. This is heavenly wisdom. I'm going to start reading at verse 18. This portion of scripture, of course, is one of Christ's authoritative statements that, that he's the light of the world. That he is that special revelation. That he is God incarnate. Come to save sinners. Starting at verse 18, Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know, neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know that my father, you would know my father also. You see how that complements the text that we saw in Luke, where Jesus says, no one knows the father unless the son reveals him. No one knows the son unless the father reveals him. All of that is the miracle of the gospel. That's wise and understanding and then rightly living in light of that. But Jesus goes on, says in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You see this clear message? Earthly, heavenly. Jesus calls him out. And he goes on to say, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. And Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing out of my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And he was saying, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. See, there's wise and understanding. There's wisdom from above. Christ opens his mouth 
and says that, that he's been sent by the Father to dwell among sinful people, to surrender his life so that they might be saved, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that we might have a right relationship with God and in doing so respond with the appropriate humility and meekness. To respond in such a way that now this wisdom from above influences every aspect of our life on this earth. He's from above. So James begins that statement with the wisdom from above is first pure. Now on the slides, you'll see that we have the parallel from the, the book of Matthew. We find the Beatitudes in Matthew and, and Luke as well. But the first verse, Matthew 5, 2 says, and Jesus opened his mouth Right? This is wisdom from above. This is wisdom from above descended to be among sinful man and speaking. He opens his mouth and he teaches them. This is wisdom from above declared to us. And then it says, wisdom from above is first pure. We see in Matthew 5, 8, as Jesus goes through the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now you'll know that the word pure, we've come across so far in our book of James. So this verse also serves for us as a recap. Back a chapter or so, we're told by James that religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their infliction and to keep oneself unstained or undefiled by the world. So you see how James is giving us an explanation of what Christ describes as the gospel applied. And then in this, this passage in chapter three, he recaps for us some of the things that we've learned earlier. This is our test. This is the authenticity of the fruit produced by applied gospel. The next portion of the, of the verse says, so it's first of all pure and then it's peaceable. Like it, it produces peace in the life of the church. We'll come back to this one, but I, I want us to understand that as we move through James, we've seen that the tongue wreaks havoc. We see in, in this passage itself that selfish ambition caused disorder. But gospel rightly applied to our lives produces what? Peace. Knowing Jesus, understanding the gospel it's peaceable. It produces peace. It produces a church that doesn't have partiality. How one sister treats another sister, how one brother treats another brother. It's peaceable. The gospel applied. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, and then gentle. This gentle, again, meekness. It, it turns away wrath. It responds with a rightful humility, understanding the magnitude of the mercy that's been shown to us. It's easy to see in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And of course, again, that takes us to verse 121 of James. Put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. 
meekness, gentleness. Matthew chapter 11, we won't go there right now, but if you would look at this on your own, you would find that Matthew chapter 11 has a parallel passage to what we read in Luke. It begins with Jesus saying, God, you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding. And he goes through and he begins to to lay out the, the same thing that we saw in Luke, but he ends it with, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly, and you will find rest for your souls. See, Christ himself is described as gentle and lowly, humble. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how should we then live? Demonstrating that same gentleness. Verse three goes on to say, it's the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, and then open to reason. Open to reason is, a, is an interesting statement. A couple of different synonyms that we might find there is that this type of wisdom, this type of application of the gospel is reasonable, willing to yield, submissive, and easy to be entreated. Now, what happens if we have the opposite of all of those things in the life of the church? What a mess, a disorder, right? We would have, we would have chaos. We have to be open to reason, open to reason to understand when we've been wrong. I love the passage where, where God says in the book of Isaiah, come let us reason together. Though your sins were as scarlet, now they're white as snow. Reason, thinking through, it also is, is willing to yield. The church is designed to be submissive, first and foremost, the authority of Jesus Christ, our head to be submissive to scripture when there's something in our lives that's incongruent and needs to be worked out. Let that scripture shape us. And then amongst one another, we give each other preference. We yield to one another. We're submissive. I listened to a brief sermon by uh, Alistair Begg. You guys know I love Alistair Begg by now. I will not do the impression, I promise you. But he says, it's okay to arrive at a meeting with some ideas in your mind but don't arrive with your mind made up. Be approachable. Be ready to, to think through and discuss with our brothers. We, we all have different gifts here. We all have different ways of seeing things. But if our aim is not selfish ambition, but rather to serve Christ and to extend his kingdom, then what a beautiful thing that we can talk through things and come with a, a different approach and end up with a result that is beautiful offering to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what the church is supposed to be. Reasonable willing to yield, submissive, easy to be entreated. And we see that in what Christ said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of, of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The next section, perhaps the, the, the key point of all that James has taken us through so far is this. Open to reason, full of mercy, and good fruits. This is the, the magnitude of mercy understanding we saw back in uh, chapter 2, verse 13. It says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we have rightly understood the mercy that God has extended to us, we're going to be forgiving people, aren't we? When we rightly understand what has been forgiven on our behalf, when we stand in front of the Grand Canyon that is our sin, 
What is it for us to forgive the sin of our brother or sister? And then we see good fruits, not plastic fruits, not counterfeit, but real fruit. Of course, Paul elaborates on that a little bit further. And he talks to us about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Those are the fruits that are produced by a right living, by a right application of the gospel. So the fourth thing that I want us to understand, I'm going to, I'll recap them for you. So the first thing is that wisdom is the gospel applied. The second thing is a warning to make sure that as we apply the gospel, that it's not done for self. The third thing is that we can understand that the gospel, the fruit of the gospel is described so that we can, we can pick out the real deal. And the fourth thing we find clearly written in James 3.18. That is that gospel applied, that wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness sown in peace. A harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. So first of all, you should understand one thing here. It, the harvest of righteousness, James sort of switches around the, the metaphor just a little bit. He talks about fruit. And we've also seen earlier in the book, he talks about first fruit. And he talks about different things that are produced as an outplaying of gospel application in our lives. But what James is probably bringing to mind isn't fruit. In fact, for those of you with gluten allergies, you should know that it's very likely that what he's describing here is a harvest of grain. Like you, you sow grain, you sow it in peace. It produces a crop of grain and it's sown in peace. It's a process. For those of you who did the homework this week, you may have watched the John Piper video. If you didn't, I encourage you to do so. But John Piper calls to view something that's said earlier in the book of James, and I won't do it justice, but I'll give you a short version. And that is that James is now saying something positively that he's earlier said in a negative way, right? What an important didactic tool. Tell somebody what they shouldn't do, flip it around and tell them what they should do. The verse that he's calling into view is back in chapter one of James. And in verse 20, James says, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What does produce the righteousness of God? Peace. That produces the righteousness of God. That's how we see righteous living. And it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing if you look at verse 18, right? If you sow in peace, you harvest righteousness and you harvest it in peace. If we accept the gospel with an understanding of what Christ has done for us, and we live it out, then we'll see the results of what Christ has done in us as part of our life, as part of our lifestyle. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want us to end today in the Old Testament. If you would, please turn to Isaiah chapter 32. Sometimes I, I want to take extra care to make sure that we conclude with the gospel. And I can assure you that we are concluding with the gospel, even though we're in the book of Isaiah. This is a messianic prophecy. This is a prophecy that points forward to what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, 
and what Christ will do. In this passage, we'll see the, the already and the not yet. The beginning of this chapter starts out with pointing to the king of righteousness. Verse one, behold, a king will reign in righteousness. We know who that king is, right? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. The one whom everyone will bow before. It says, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Look at verse three. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. Isn't that interesting? We saw what Jesus said as he took the little side note to his disciples. And what did he say? He said, you know what? The prophets and the kings wanted to understand this, but blessed are you because your ears see it. Your ears hear it. And what we see in this text is that those eyes that have seen with clarity the gospel, they'll not be closed. The ears of those who hear will give attention. That's gospel promise. The gospel promises that in the fullness of time, Christ would come. His people would see him. His people would respond in faith and his people would apply it. Then skip ahead to verse 15 of the same precious chapter. God says through the prophet Isaiah, until the spirit is poured out on us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. See that harvest thing again? See that, that beauty of what's produced supernaturally because it's produced by the spirit, the spirit's poured out. Verse 16, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation and secure dwellings and in quiet, rest, in quiet resting places. That's the promise of the gospel. You see, as new covenant believers, if we have accepted the gospel and we're applying the gospel, then it's going to produce in our lives peace and righteousness. It's going to produce in our homes peace and righteousness. And you know what's going to produce in our church? Peace and righteousness. Praise God. This is, this is the gospel fulfilled and being fulfilled. Brothers and sisters, we're waiting to be perfected. We're under sanctified. And that's why we draw near to God's text. We, we draw near to God's word so that it would continue working out in us all that needs to be worked out. May we serve Christ with pure motives, with clean hearts, with clean lips for the glory of God and the good of his people. With Peace and righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for wisdom from above. We thank you that your word declares that you are wisdom from God. You are righteousness. You are sanctification. You are our peace. God, we just thank you for what you have done on our behalf. May we marvel at how wide your love is, how deep. Marvel at the magnitude of your mercy, Lord God, and may we live it out. May we apply this gospel to our lives in such a way that the fruit is evident, that our conduct, that our lifestyle is honoring to you, that as a church, the Pacific Hope Church would be a church characterized by these things, God, that we would be peaceable, that we would be living out lives of mercy and good fruit. We thank you, Lord God, for the things that you are doing in our midst, and we humbly ask that you would continue the work that you have started in us. In Jesus' precious name, 
Amen.